Good morning. Good morning, Faith Church. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 in just a moment here. This is week two of our sermon series. We started last week uh, asking and trying to answer the question, who is Faith Church? And the first part of our answer from last week as we looked at Isaiah 6 was Faith Church is a worshiping people. And today we're going to talk about how Faith Church is a loving people as we look at 1 John chapter 4. Now, I'm going to uh, not assume that everybody in this building right now is a Christian. Uh, And so if you're not a Christian, you're here visiting at Faith Church, first of all, welcome. I think this is a safe place for you to think about the Christian faith. And I want to welcome you to Faith Church. In fact, if you're not a Christian, today you get a sneak peek into something that is very important to Christians. Today we're going to talk about Christian love. And so let me invite you as someone who perhaps is not a Christian to step within the worldview of a Christian and to kind of look around a little bit, see what you can see and learn. And maybe afterwards come and ask me a question, perhaps a friend, a church member brought you here you may have questions for them. I'm sure they would enjoy talking with you. Love, love has become especially powerful in our culture today. The cultural mantra right now is that love is love. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that song before? Have you heard that agenda lying beneath perhaps lots of things being said publicly? Love is love. I get to shape what love is. I get to define it as an individual. I can love who I want, when I want, and how I want. Now, at first glance, this sounds fairly intriguing. But friends, what happens if we disagree on our definitions of love? People often appeal to love to justify something, to get something. So some say, for example, that abortion is an act of Self-love. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, how might this kind of worldly ideology impact Christians? Well, when we kind of breathe in this cultural air, we are tempted to compromise, aren't we? Because it just feels unloving to create boundaries. It feels unloving to have a certain set of rules or to enforce some limitations. That feels unloving, doesn't it? Freedom feels loving. But is that the case? And is that idea shaped by the Scriptures or primarily by worldly forces? So there's some kind of external pressures that we face as Christians which may cause us to love more like the world and less like God. But there are also some internal pressures, right? Also known as sin. (laughs) We are not naturally lovers of other people. We are naturally lovers of self. That's our bent. And so love feels costly to us. It's difficult. It means less of me and more of you. And that's not easy. Love hurts. So we need help as Christians. And God provides that, I believe, in our passage. So in this text, John the Apostle gives us some contours of Christian love. Let me read this passage now for you. Hear God's Word. Starting in verse 7, chapter 4, 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. 
And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of this passage, and I trust of the uh, sermon as well. In a sentence, you'll see it on the screen. So if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to jot this down. Uh, You'll see it also in the bulletin uh, notes. Here it is. Let's love one another deeply, brothers and sisters, because our love reveals God to this world. I'll say it again. Let's love one another deeply, brothers and sisters, because our love reveals God to this world. Now, this paragraph of thought, it's a really kind of tightly packed little paragraph, but it's, it's fairly easy to see where John is going. Notice in verse 7, there's kind of this opening exhortation, love one another. That's what this passage is all about. If you're wondering, what is this passage all about? There it is. You see it in verse 7. And then in the following verses, he starts to give some rationale. He starts to give some kind of inspiration for that initial command. And notice in verse 11, he circles back to the command. Also in verse 12, he's reminding them to love one another. And in verse 12, he concludes with the goal, kind of the end game of love, which we'll get to towards the end of this discussion, this this message. So I want to give you three contours of Christian love. Three contours of Christian love. We're going to look at, first of all, the reason for love in verses 7 and 8, the example of love in verses 9 through 11, And then finally, the goal of love in verse 12. So let's start with the reason for love, verses 7 and 8. Now, in this letter, the Apostle John has been talking about love for a few chapters. It's really one of his main emphases in this letter. He's talked about God's love for us. He's talked about our love for God and, of course, our love for other people. In fact, this is kind of the third time he has brought up this subject So he keeps circling back to this idea of love. William Tyndale, in his commentary on uh, 1 John, he comments on these verses. He says, John singeth the old tune yet again. He's back at it again. Here we go, right? But here, in these verses, John comes to the apex of what love is. So this is kind of the nucleus of our passage. He traces the stream of love to its source. We see it in verse 8. Notice those three little words at the end of verse 8. It says, God is love. Here's kind of the white-hot center of this passage. God is love. So, friends, we cannot think about love in any context until we first think about God. God defines love. And not just external to himself as if he's kind of like, hey, you know, giving us a definition. Hey, guys, here's a definition of love. Here's what I want you to think about love. God defines it in himself. God defines it in his own character and in his own personhood. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
Now, what is John's first argument as he's thinking about Christian love? Notice he states it twice, first in verse 7, then again in verse 8. First in verse 7, he says, love is from God. And then verse 8, again, God is love. So friends, just like, uh, like light radiates from the sun, love radiates from God's very nature. Love is not a sentimental, squishy, emotional reality. It's not an Oprah group hug. It is more than a description of how you feel. Uh, Love is a word that may involve your emotions, certainly, but the biblical concept of agape is a love that seeks the highest good of other people, a love of total commitment. That's Christian love. You can think of John's argument in these opening verses like this. As you're looking at verses 7 and 8, here's this kind of a summary of John's argument. There's two steps to it. The first step is love is fundamental to God's character. God is love. And here's the second part of it. The second step that we need to understand is we're looking at verse 8 in particular. And thus, his children must bear the family resemblance. So if you've got kids, then they have your DNA. You know, your kids have your nature, which has been genetically passed to them. John's saying something similar about those who are spiritually born again. That phrase, born again, points to a radical transformation in Christians. So it's so radical, in fact. In fact, Christians are so radically new that the only human analogy that can kind of fit is human birth. Now, you guys know somebody told me this recently that I think in the last year we've had like 17 babies, something like this, right? So if you were to kind of somehow sneak into the hospital and, you know, tap Vinny Savasco on the shoulder several months ago and say, hey, Vinny, what's going on here? You would say, well, we are just given a brand spanking new baby, right? So there was, there's not someone and now there is someone. It's that drastic when we become Christians. John says, if that if that change has happened to you, if you are a real Christian, if you've been regenerated from death to life, if you've been adopted into his family, God's family as sons, if you're bearing a new nature, if you're existing now as a new creation, then you will necessarily love like your father loves. That's his argument. We were talking as a teaching team on Monday uh, and Ryan Dennis, who joins us and, you know, is so very helpful. We were reflecting on these very verses, and Ryan mentioned uh, just when he became a Christian and how uh, his capacity to love changed. And there's particular members of his kind of extended family where he had some negativity, some really staunch uh, staunch and, 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 and present negativity and a lack of love towards certain uh, extended family members. And then he became a Christian. And it was just like a light switch went on. All of a sudden, he had this capacity, this new affection, this new love for those very same people in his family. And his family noticed the difference. So, friends, Christianity puts at the center, God is love. Not love is love. Love begins with God. God defines love. Love doesn't define God. Love isn't some kind of external force that God needs to embrace. We hope you embrace it, God. That's not how it works. God can't fall in love. He is love. God can't fall in love for the same reason water can't get wet. It is wet. Love isn't just one attribute of God. It's part of his very nature. You know, human love is often described as a response to something desirable. So we say things like, oh, I love her because she's so kind. Oh, I really love him because he's just so sharp. 
Human love is usually kind of responsive in that way. But agape love, divine love, comes first. It initiates. It creates value in its object, whether there is any value there or not. The sun shines on the earth, not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. God loves me. God loves you because he is he, not because you are you. And this begs the question, of course, as we're thinking about this concept of God is love. Okay, how has God loved within himself? What's the shape of Trinitarian love? You know this, if you've been walking with the Lord for uh, an extended period of time, love has existed in the Godhead long before he created anything, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the shape of love isn't kind of this vague concept. It's not just this attitude. It has specificity. It is a particular love aimed at particular persons within a particular community, which in God's, head, God's case is the Godhead. Trinitarian love is a particularized love. You know, it would be strange to say, oh yeah, the Father loved the Spirit. If the Father never was there communing with the Spirit through all eternity, that would be strange. That would be silly to say that. Well, friends, it would be strange and silly for us as well. If we don't have a particularized love, are we actually loving? Interestingly, the Apostle John here is writing as a member of his own church to members of his church. So John's teaching his local church, his church, to love one another. So John is calling us, or God is calling us through the Apostle John this morning, to a particularized love. These people in this city, at this church. Now, of course, our love is broader than that, right? We want to love all kinds of people inside and outside the church. We want to love Christians of all stripes. You know, maybe some Christians we know overseas or at different churches, family members that are living in a different state. Of course, we want to love those people as well. But here, so looking at this passage, John is not thinking about that kind of love. He's thinking about loving other Christians within a particular local church. So brothers and sisters, where are you aiming your love? Do you have a particularized love? We so want you to be known here at Faith Church. We want to know you at Faith Church. Maybe you're new to our church. Uh, maybe you just became a member or you're thinking about being a member of our church. We want to know you. We want you to get to know us as well. And this is a great place, I think, for you to continue to grow in your spiritual faith and to con continue to grow as a disciple. And you know, a great place to start is here on Sunday mornings. I know some of you, I'm not going to name names, don't worry. Some of you come in a little late, leave pretty quickly, maybe during the last song, you know and you kind of scuttle out of the church and you head to your cars, maybe you've got an appointment. I understand that sometimes. But some of you perhaps are doing that maybe a little bit out of fear. You're an introvert, right? I'm an extrovert, so I'm like, what? Why would you do that? You know, so I, I get there's personality differences. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, a great place to start to actually practice this sort of particular love is here on Sunday mornings. So let me encourage you to come early. Wake up like 10 or 15 minutes early, come to church early, get to know some people before maybe your Sunday school class. Stay later, linger after church here in this room or perhaps in the lobby. If you've got a lunch appointment, kind of push it to 12.45 or 1 o'clock and ask questions. Let me give you two questions you can ask after Sunday morning. You've heard me say this before. Two questions. One is, how can I pray for you? And the other is, hey, what'd you get out of the sermon? Ask those two questions as you're trying to love each other and, and get into each other's lines.
So here's the reason for our love, just by way of review. God is love. We are his children, and thus loving God's other children should be natural for us. That's the reason for love. Here's the example of love. Put your eyes on verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So here, here's the prime example of love, Jesus. That shouldn't shock any of us in this room. Right? Jesus is God's primary example of love. In fact, God's love is revealed to us in two ways by way of Jesus. First of all, in his coming to earth, in his incarnation, we see that in verse 9, but also in his atoning sacrifice. We see that in verse 10. So here we see kind of the overflow of God, right? God's not just kind of enjoying this, this eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He overflows. He is generous with his love. I can think of college friends, uh, three of my closest friends, Kyle, Dan, and Scott, and they knew each other. They came from the same hometown. They had a really kind of thick friendship coming right into college. They were young Christians and vibrant, uh, vibrant young men, and, and I saw them, and I thought, man, I want to I get in on this, right? And then they could, could have totally kind of crossed their arms and said, hey, we're all set, you know, go find another group of friends. But they welcomed me in. Now, obviously, those guys aren't the Trinity, you know, so the analogy obviously falls flat. But, but we've all felt that desire to be welcomed into some family, some group that is full of love. And in this case, because we're talking about the God here, we're talking about something that is infinite and ultimate. So infinite love and ultimate love, the greatest party, right, that you could ever be a part of. And we don't find the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit crossing their arms. Friends, with God, even though he is all set, he has no need for you or me. But out of his incredible generosity, he welcomes us. He gives, and he gives, and he gives. God's love reaches out. It initiates towards us, even though we don't deserve it. So John tells us first in verse 9 that God's love is manifest in Jesus' incarnation. Notice his coming, his, his being sent to earth by the Father. Philippians 2 is a great passage. You can look at it this afternoon. It documents this well. It essentially says that Jesus does not cling uh, selfishly to his godness, but he willingly puts on flesh. He willingly takes on the full gamut of human existence, you know, with the spatial restrictions of a body and inviting and embracing even physical pain and so forth. And not only did he become a dude, he was known only as a dude, right? It's not like he was a man, but everybody around him knew he was really God. His glory was a hidden glory. He was a nobody. Friends, this is how low he stooped for sinners, and that stooping took him all the way to the cross. He embraced, he embraced the path of humiliation. His obedience didn't lead him to more recognition. His obedience didn't lead him to more success, more popularity. It led him to death by way of a cross, the most degrading torture device in ancient Rome. Friends, how deep is the Father's love for us? How far would love drive the Godhead to come and save sinners? This far, Jesus he stooped lower and lower and lower into the muck and mess of humanity. 
for you, for me. John tells us more in verse 10. Notice, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, if you want to love God more, don't start with your dedication and your faithfulness and your service to him. Contemplate what he has done for you. Not only did God send Jesus to earth to take on flesh and to die on the cross, but, but that cross event has serious metaphysical and theological ramifications. In other words, something radically shifted in human history as a result of the cross. What shifted? What changed? Well, there's this thing called the atonement. You know, people have a twofold problem, every single person on the planet. The first problem is guilt. The second problem is corruption. The cross takes care of both problems. Our sin, it makes us guilty before a holy God. We don't have a good, good enough lawyer to talk us out of this verdict, right? But for Christians, before the gavel drops with a guilty verdict, there is a shocking development. Jesus himself puts himself forward as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He puts himself forward as the one to take on that judgment that we deserve, that is due our name. This is the way God accepts us. I want to contrast this with the love is love mantra of this world. John says God is love. The world says love is God. Love is defined as unconditional acceptance, unqualified tolerance. But friends, God doesn't accept us the way we are because we are sinful and we are guilty. The only way to accept us is through Jesus. And that, of course, required death and a cross and blood. Someone had to pay the cost. This is why love is love isn't actually profitable. It's not actually possible. It's a faulty worldview. It will fail you because it doesn't take care of your sin. It doesn't take care of your guilt problem. It just covers it up with this thin film and pretends there's no problem. Friends, only Jesus can truly deal with that problem. If you're here as a non-Christian, again, welcome. So glad you're here. And I just wonder whether you've kind of covered up, you know, this, this, the struggle that you have inside, maybe this tension that you feel inside, and you've, you've been struggling to put labels on it, what is that? And the world has been telling you just to accept yourself, that God accepts you, everybody should accept you. But the truth of the matter is, you are sinful. You do deserve the wrath of God. But God, in his merciful love, has extended an offer to everybody on this planet that Jesus has come to save. And if you repent of your sins, if you trust in Christ for forgiveness, you can be accepted or acceptable to God. And that vertical acceptance that works itself out horizontally in the church as well. And so you can experience it there. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. So let me just encourage you, if you're not, not a Christian, don't kind of cover up that pain, cover up that tension with a sort of thin veil. Deal with it the way God deals with it here. So our guilt for Christians, that's taken care of. What about corruption? Do you ever feel uh, polluted with your sin and weakness? You know, uh, ever feel like there's something toxic about you, something bent out of shape, something that affects everything you are, something that spreads like a disease onto other people and it just kind of makes you feel crummy? Ugh, what do I do about that? Well, that's called sin. But look at the end of verse 9. Let me read you this little, uh, little part section here. 
God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. You see that? The only way, the only way to experience that kind of resurrection life is to be connected to Jesus. That's the only way. God sent Jesus into the world so we might live through him. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead and those who are united to Jesus are drawn into his resurrection life. When we become Christians, we're, we're kind of like wobbly toddlers. You know, we're just kind of learning to walk. Uh, I remember we got a video of our youngest, Lucy. This is probably, you know, a year and a half ago when she's learning to walk. And she's, you know, she's just like very intentional with each step and just super wobbly, right? And she's like squealing with glee, you know, the first time she's walking, right? Well, that's a lot like how many Christians, many young Christians, many growing Christians feel. They're just kind of intentionally figuring out what does it mean to walk in love and walk in faith? Maybe the rest of us, you know, those things are a little bit more natural. Well, you know, it's not always natural to walk in love. It's something that we learn. In fact, we learn to love. Love is not like other subjects. It can't can't be just understood and then practiced. It can only be understood by practice. It's more like measles than like math. You know, maybe, maybe as you think about it, there's some specific relationships right now where you're not finding a lot of love. You find deadness. The soil of that relationship is bad soil. Maybe it's due to your own sin or the sin of the other person. Maybe it's just awkwardness or you just don't like each other, personality clash. But if you are a brother or sister with that person, listen, resurrection power is available to you. Resurrection power is available to you. So, so in that place where there's deadness, there is hope. In that place where you see no life and you think to yourself, dead soil can't produce life. In that very place, in that very relationship, life is possible. Affection is possible. Warmth and humility are possible. Not because of you, but because of Jesus working in that relationship, working through you and working through that person to bring life, bring life. You know, it's not only possible for love to appear in dead relationships. Notice in verse 11, as he circles back to the main commandment, it's commanded, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. If Jesus' incarnation and his crucifixion are the pinnacle of God's love towards us, and we are called to be imitators of God, then we are called to a sort of cruciform love, a love that denies ourselves, a love that dies to self, a love that considers the interests of others ahead of ourselves. We love each other, as C.S. Lewis has said, with acts of substitution. Now, he's not talking about like Jesus, you know, we don't atone for other people's sins, but we do stand in the gap and bear some pain, bear some discomfort, pay some cost so that the other person can have life. This is why subconsciously so many of us are allergic to Christian love. We rightly sense that death is at the center of love. So the key for us is not to try to conjure up this radical uh, love in ourselves. It's to recognize that you, Christian, if you are a real Christian, have already experienced this sort of lavish love from God in Christ. I want you to imagine the 12 disciples, you know, hanging out for those three years. And I'm sure for Jesus, it was like herding cats, right? And you can kind of sense that at times in some of the gospel teachings and their interactions. You're like, okay, these guys didn't always get along, right? And at one point in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus says, hey, 
hey guys, let's huddle up. <laughs> so they huddle up and he says, they, pointing outside of the huddle, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And you can just picture like Peter looking over at John. It's like, you want me to love this dreamer? You know, and then John looking over at Peter, you want me to actually love this loudmouth? Always just yapping? Stop talking, Peter. You can see Matthew looking over at Thomas and saying, what do you say, you want me to love this skeptic? And Thomas looking over at Matthew and saying, hey, you want me to love this tax collector? This is the nature of the command we're called to love. How do we do it? How, do, how did they do it? How do we do it today? We remind ourselves of those words in verse, I think it's verse 10, right? If God loved us in this way, those words are a game changer. You know, they keep me from thinking or feeling that I'm the one that's always being wronged or that I'm the one that's always being shortchanged. There was a day, a decisive day, before which God saved me in Christ, where it used to be all about me. But on that day when God saved me, and from that point onwards, it became about Him, and it became about others. True love is costly. It often hurts us. But if I'm a true Christian, I'm willing to pay that cost. Think back to, to Ruth's story. It's an Old Testament story. Ruth and Naomi. Naomi's her mother-in-law. Naomi's a, a Jewish woman. Ruth is a pagan woman. Ruth's husband, Naomi's son, has, been, um, has, has died. And so Ruth, as this foreigner and widow, chose to love Naomi by restricting and narrowing her own life. Going with Naomi into the Jewish world meant she was essentially giving up any prospects within her own people, her pagan people. She could have thrived with her people, but she chose to love Ruth and follow Ruth, which was risky. Friends, to love is to limit ourselves. As we see in Ruth's story, this kind of narrowing love also deepens our lives. It brings blessing. It brings depth. You know, I've known, and I'm sure you've known too, just, just a number of godly marriages over the decades and, and I, I think about, you know, some of those mature husbands and, you know, they're, they're growing in their love and affection for their wives and they're, they're studying their wives in every season and, and what it looks like to love his wife, you know, will change and kind of morph based on the season of life that she's in. But, but he kind of chooses to narrow his life for her good. And these husbands, as I'm thinking about them, and I've got particular names in mind, perhaps you do too, these husbands develop enormous capacities for gentleness and thoughtfulness and grace. Friends, those of us who feel the sting of particularity often end up flat, without depth in our spiritual lives, lost in fleeting things, living distant lives from other people. But I want you to notice what John is calling us to, Christian love. It has a different shape. It has a cross shape. It moves us from using people to loving people. It moves us from a, a vague sort of commitment to people to particular commitments to people. Christian love invites us to narrow ourselves for the sake of bringing life to other people. Can you think of people who have done this for you? Brothers and sisters over the years have done this for you. First thing that pops into my mind is my mom. She had a really wonderful musical career in her late teens, early 20s. She got married, and she really had quite a trajectory. She could have been quite a pianist, a performer, in fact. She got married, started having kids, and her life all of a sudden started narrowing, right? She had to give up that musical career. But even as she got older, she had opportunities to perform and do various things. And then her son, Godwin, and her daughter, Harsha, 
we started playing the violin. And we started playing at recitals and all kinds of, you know, events. And she became an accompanist. And so the performer that had such a promising career ahead of her narrowed her life to serve her children. Another group of people I think of is our church deacons, who with little fanfare behind the scenes consistently meet the practical needs of so many people in our church. You know, a little death here, a little narrowing there, bringing life to our church family. They do this so well. They're a great example for us, aren't they? Because they're imitating the love of God. So we see the reason, and I move on to the third point here, the reason for love, see the example of love in Christ and his cross in particular. Now we're going to finally look at quickly the goal of love. Now we're going to have some applications at the end. The goal of love. Look with me at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, this is such an interesting little verse that kind of rounds out our passage. The first sentence, no one has ever seen God. That may sound familiar. It comes in almost identical words from John's gospel, or excuse me, yeah, John's gospel in the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 18. So you can look at that later. There, John says that God is only known uh, through Jesus. God, the only son who is at the Father's side, has made him known. But here, I want you to notice in verse 12, here, John seems to change the subject a little. He starts to talk about something else. We love one another. God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. So what is John saying? He's talking about the goal of love. John is teaching that the unseen God, who once was revealed himself in his son, now reveals himself in his people. I'm going to say that again. This is important. John is teaching that the unseen God, who once revealed himself in his son, now reveals himself in his people, if, if they love one another. God and his love are revealed foremost in Jesus. We know that. God and his love are also revealed in Jesus' body, the church. Our love for one another is evidence of God's dwelling, indwelling presence. You know, you can sit down with someone for three days and talk theology and and, and talk about God's attributes. You can lecture on systematic theology, and you can pontificate about the, the Godhead all day long. And the person may still not really know God. But when that person sees God's love lived out in your love towards him and other people, then he begins to see God. The invisible God becomes visible to him through your love for other brothers and sisters. That's what John is getting at here. The proof of the Christian life is love, love, love for God, love for other Christians. And so your spiritual maturity is not measured by your age or how long you've been a Christian or how theologically astute you may be or how well you serve the church. Those are good things. Your theological maturity is measured by love. John actually takes it a step further. Notice he says his love is made complete in us. So God's love finds its most complete expression when we respond to his love and practice that love in our brotherly and sisterly relationships. The goal of love then, just as a way to summarize, then we're going to get to applications. The goal of love is to display God's love deeper to each other, but then also to this world. Friends, all the outreach programs in the world cannot approach the power of seeing this love lived out in tangible ways on a consistent basis within a local church. John teaches that this is the way God will be seen 
You know, too often it is easier to plan another program than to engage in messy, vulnerable love for one another. I've seen this in my life. Think back to last summer. Most of you know that we got into a car accident in Florida. And I won't unpack all of that, but let's just say that was very difficult as one of our kids was hurt. I still remember, I have this vivid memory of, of, of sitting in the kitchen kind of area with Jan and Mike Zender. We're about to leave, and they just asked me questions about that event. And then at one point, I just started, you know, there were tears coming down, and Mike comes around me from the right side, arm. Jan comes around me from the left side, arm. And then they prayed with me. It's wonderful, wonderful. I've seen it in my life, and I'm sure you have too, right? Other brothers and sisters who go out of their way to love you, love your family in times of grief or suffering or confusion, and then onlookers are completely bewildered, you know? Who are these people? Why would they go to such trouble for you? And in some situations in my past, as the church has cared for me or my family, I would have the opportunity to tell them, hey, they're church members. They say, hey, where do you go to church? And I can say, this is where we go to church. Come, and there would be a door that would open up to tell them about the love of God. So three contours of love, the reason for love, the example of love, the goal of love. Let me just give you some quick applications as we come to a close. I'm sure you can think of more. I'm going to give you four. I'm sure you can think of a bunch more. I don't want you to get overwhelmed by this section. Uh, Maybe one or two will kind of strike you especially, and that's fine. So let me give you four applications. First of all, love with your service. You know, Jenny and I noticed uh, this when we first came to Faith Church. Uh, I think this is an area of strength for Faith Church, bearing practical burdens. You guys are great at this stepping in quickly and effectively when there is a need. So maybe it's meals or, you know, these, these big Tupperware tubs of clothing, kids' clothing that you guys pass around to each other, or, you know, guys coming over to help me demo my basement. And somebody heard that I need some work on my deck because there's some rotting wood, by the way. And I get these texts and phone calls, you know, and I'm just like, this is wonderful. This is great. Wonderful ways brothers and sisters can love. Love with your service. Number two, love with your words. Love with your words. Be intentional with your words. Ephesians 4 exhorts us, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, speak the truth in love. So friends, let me ask you some questions. Do you regularly practice affirmation? When's the last time you intentionally shared a word of encouragement or affirmation to another brother or sister here at Faith Church? Maybe a brother showed incredible patience towards one of his unruly kids, or a sister is showing incredible spiritual resilience in the midst of a trial. Do you point it out in love? Loving with your words includes loving each other enough to say the hard things, right? When is the last time you lovingly spoke a word of provocation, a word that challenged or exposed something? Maybe it's uncomfortable, but it's needed. It's the loving thing to do. So we love with our words. Number three, love with your home. It's a little verse in Romans chapter 15. It says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. What a, what a glorious little verse. You know, so instructive. Friends, think about this with me, and, and you can ponder this more this afternoon. How has Christ welcomed you? How has God demonstrated hospitality towards you? In like manner, welcome others into your home. Opening up your homes, perhaps it's for a meal. It's a tremendous way to love. 
It doesn't have to be complicated. Your home doesn't have to be perfectly clean. But boy, welcoming them can be uh, a great way to show love. Number four, love by showing equal concern. Love by showing equal concern. Here's a little verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 25. It says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts, its members, its people, should show equal concern for each other. You hear that? Members of the church, parts of the church, you know, people of the church should show equal concern for each other. You know, it's easy to show concern to some people in our lives, the people that you get along with, or that maybe you have a lot in common with. Imagine if Jesus' loved love looked like this towards us. That would be kind of brutal, right? Friends, if our love is confined to only people like us, that may be little more than self-love spread over a slightly larger area. Biblical love crosses boundaries. So how often do you have meaningful contact with church members working in an industry other than your own? Families, do you welcome singles into your home? Singles, do you make space in your life and heart for families and children? How often do you mingle with different generations here at Faith Church? Is that, is that a concern of yours? Biblical love shows equal concern. So brothers and sisters, as we come to an end here, let me just remind you of our main point. Let's love one another deeply and truly and practically. Let's practice love. It's something that you can grow in, something I can grow in. And why do we do it? Because God has loved us so deeply and thoroughly. And because our love for one another reveals God, reveals Jesus, not only to each other, but to this world. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to uh, consider this passage.